Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Norma Walden, a program coordinator of the club's International Relations Forum. We also welcome our online and radio listeners, and we invite our audience to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Our speaker this evening, Anastasia Edel, grew up in southern Russia during the last years of the Soviet Union. She graduated with a degree in English and German studies from Kubansky State University and worked as a fiction translator. A recipient of the British government Chevening Award, she moved to England for postgraduate studies and then to the U.S., earning her Master's of Fine Arts in Writing from Pacific University near Portland, Oregon. Ms. Edel is the author of Russia, Putin's Playground. Her prose has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, Project Syndicate Courts, and World Literature Today. She lives in San Francisco and teaches Russian culture and history at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. We're pleased that the UC Berkeley Division of Osher is our program partner. Anastasia Edel will speak about Putin's quest for greatness. Please help me welcome her now. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Norma, for a lovely introduction. And thank you for all of you who came here on a very fine evening um, in San Francisco to talk about a subject that is not particularly light or uplifting. (laughs) So um, it is interesting that this is the second lecture I am given today. And the only reason I bring it up is that After years of oblivion, Russia has all of a sudden been propelled into the limelight of the world attention, particularly here in the U.S. Um, It's a huge difference even compared to two two years ago when um, a lot of Slavic programs were closed around the country or were closing. Um, Even President Obama called Russia a regional power. So Russia was kind of off uh, the uh, public space or public mind of particularly of Americans. Now, all that started changing in 2016 when the then... candidate from the Republican, presidential candidate from the Republican Party, Donald Trump, uh, called Vladimir Putin a great leader. And he raised quite a few eyebrows by that. And uh, people, for the most part, shrugged shrugged it off. I actually remember being uh, in New York and talking to a professor of political sciences at Columbia and asking him, why is an American presidential uh, nominee is saying those things uh, about a Russian strongman. And he told me, don't worry about it. He wouldn't get it past nomination. <laughs> so that, um, and that's a true story. So, uh, and then in November of 2016, uh, Donald Trump was elected president and uh, immediately Russia was accused of electoral interference. There were indictments. Um, there followed indictments in the subsequent two years of uh, certain uh, people uh, cooperating with the uh, Russians on in, in various uh, directions. And so all of a sudden, but what happened was virtually overnight, Russia began to dominate uh, the uh, Debate uh, it loomed very, very largely, and so for a lot of Americans, it seemed like it was overnight. But what I'm trying to say tonight is nothing in history is overnight. It was a long process uh, during which uh, Vladimir Putin was on a quest uh, to make Russia great. It's just that uh, most uh, of the people noticed it, particularly here in the United States, when it came to their backyards in the form of alleged uh, electoral interference. And so 
this was uh, a long time in the making, about 20 years of Putin, what now feels like Putin's perpetual presidency. And um, he also gave us a case study in greatness bec- or in making a country great again. And so we're going to a sad case study, but it's a case study. So we can look at it and um, draw some conclusions and maybe lessons for for the future, because Russia is a very interesting case. It's in the last 50 years went through really um, huge changes uh, socially, economically, politically, and has kind of um, transitioned from a totalitarian state to a nascent democracy and then to capitalism. And God knows what it is. I think the officially is called managed democracy, whatever that means. So, uh, but let's talk about greatness. Of course, uh, Vladimir Putin didn't start uh, on this quest for greatness from scratch. In fact, uh, Russia is uh, no stranger to greatness. Um, everything in Russia is, well, great. Russians use the word great with great frequency. There is, There are cities that are named Novgorod the Great, Rostov the Great, there is Peter the Great, Great Turn, that was the name of Stalin's radical economic policies, the Great Purge, the Great Terror, and the Great Lent, which is now happening uh, in advance of the Russian Easter. So Russian language, according to uh, one of the most uh, one of the famous Russian novelists of the 19th century, Turgenev, is not um, uh, just a language, but it's a great and powerful language. Russian wars are also great. Um, so they, great, uh, they are known under the names of Great Northern War, something that Peter the Great, Peter the Great fought. And um, what the world knows as World War II in Russia is known exclusively almost under the name of Great Patriotic War. So um, In the USSR, of course, um, now there is a tendency that the worse things are economically, the more there is talk of greatness. So USSR particularly, everything there was was just great. Uh, It stared at you from everywhere, from great cause to... um, So it was was a very... uh, It was a place where greatness took a big part in the national... Vernacular. Everything that was great in the world originated in Russia. And what this, for those of you breaking your head over this picture, uh, in Russia, it was a popular meme, I guess, before memes uh, were known, is that Russia is a native land of elephants. And so uh, it's not to say, it's to say that, you know, all Russians believed that, that an, a, elephants too originated in Russia, but there was a, good chunk of people who would believe it if it was told on TV or written in a book. They wouldn't be surprised. Um, so why greatness? Well, certainly because, you know, life in Soviet Union was very dull. For all the work, talk, the talk of greatness, it was not a fun place to live in. And uh, people struggled economically, and uh, they also lived uh, in the post-truth society before, you know, post-truth became known here in the West. But greatness is kind of an antidote. It's a drug of sort. You know, if you're, you may be poor and your life uh, can be uh, not exactly what you want it to be, but uh, you are a beacon of mankind. And that's what we were told in Soviet schools. The entire country is setting a great example to the world how to build the best, the greatest uh, socialist society or and communist society eventually on earth. So people, um, people were fed this talk of greatness as long as I remember it. And I spent most of my time growing up in the Soviet Union um, when Russia was, when Soviet Union was this greatest um, nation and a beacon of mankind. Russian leaders, of course, from times immemorial were uh, not just uh, czars, they were purveyors of great causes, uh, starting 
with Ivan III, who is not on this picture, who uh, married a niece of the Byzantine emperor and claimed continuity through that with the Roman Empire. And in fact, uh, the Russian grand dukes and uh, grand princes started calling themselves czars, which is a corrupted version of Caesar. So they uh, claimed divine authority to the already nearly absolute power that they wielded upon the land. Now, Ivan the Terrible um, chose to to use this uh, divine authority as an excuse to unleash uh, the Dante, Dante's hell on earth uh, as he was going after his own population, decimating the land-owning class. And um, But in the meantime, making Russia great. It was under Ivan when the conquest of Siberia um, started and uh, Russia began expanding. He also subjugated um, uh, other principalities of uh, the modern uh, of of Russia that just emerged from the Mongol conquest. So a numberable number of people died during Ivan the Terrible rule. Peter the Great is credited as the great westernizer and somebody who made Russia uh, a more into a modern state. He uh, is from the Romanov dynasty, and the Romanov dynasty oversaw the transition of Russia from this fractured medieval state that has just emerged from years of foreign uh, rule of the Mongols and um, making it the world's biggest empire. It was also the world's poorest empire. So uh, it was great, uh, and uh, he also built his window to Europe, St. Petersburg. Those of you who have been in St. Petersburg have seen what a beautiful city it is. Um, unfortunately, it was built uh, through a lot of hardship. It was built on a swamp where cities are not supposed to be and to make his vision, his grand vision of St. Petersburg a reality. People, uh, Peter uh, killed a great uh, number of serfs who built St. Petersburg. So unfortunately for them, uh, even though their bones paved the streets of St. Petersburg, they can't admire the beauty that you and I can. And such is uh, the sad thing about history. It just rolls forward and what is left are those artifacts of greatness. And in the similar vein, um, you know, the party, uh, the Communist Party that came to power in 1917 after overthrowing the Romanov dynasty um, was no different from the autocrats of the past. Uh, everybody talked about the great Communist Party and the great Stalin and great Lenin. So it's a very familiar narrative. It's just, it almost feels like in Russia, you just have to reverse, you know, you, you just have to plug in a name, the jour, and you have the narrative. Now, uh, of course, the price of greatness is uh, very high. Uh, if Russian experience holds any lessons, it is that the country on a quest to greatness trivializes the lives of individual citizens. They simply become a backdrop which throws greatness of their leaders into sharper relief. Um, a known quote is that death of one person is a tragedy and death of millions a statistic. So um, the, uh, the life of a human being becomes valuable only in as much as human, those humans are willing to throw it into the furnace of greatness of other people and their ambition. So, um, of course, this is not this is not the picture that people who are lured into greatness and into this grandiosity dreams are shown in the beginning, whether it's in Hitler's Germany in 1930s or whether it's in uh, the, the time of the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917. People go uh, after great uh, dreams and they by the time they realize that they've been duped, it's normally too too late. Um, the beginnings of greatness dreams are bright, but the endings are never good. So, of course, no um, no regime can um, operate only on cohesion. So people have to somehow be co-opted into this larger vision of greatness. And so in Soviet Union, um, it was... 
uh, it was known to the citizens of the Soviet Union, ironically, by the name of this um, Soviet fairy tale called The Kingdom of Distorted Mirrors. Now, it was a fairy tale that we all watched in the, it originated, uh, originates from the 50s, and it was about some faraway land where people were not told or shown the truth. Uh, but in reality, most of the uh, Soviet citizens were living in the Kingdom of Distorted Mirror, where they had to stand in line for very basic uh, foods in front of peeling um, edifices. And meanwhile, you know, on the left, you had the leader who was pinning himself a lot of uh, bright stars and um, the rhetoric, the TV, the slogans all around you were telling you, what a great country you are living in. And so what happens in a place like that is that uh, it breeds cynicism. You know, when you are told one thing and you witness another and everybody has to partake in it, it's it becomes a very hopeless place to leave because people are afraid remembering, you know, what kind of punishment they can get for not towing the party line of greatness. Uh, they uh, they simply have to bow down, and it breeds hopelessness, inferiority, and there was also a lot of anger in USSR. It was a pent-up anger. I was part of the generation that was lucky enough to live in a different Russia, in a Russia that was not great. Um, and all of that uh, goes back to this one man, Mikhail Gorbachev, compare him to this person, right? Um, he doesn't even look real. Gorbachev was real. <laughs> Gorbachev was actually from the south of Russia. He spoke like a normal person. Uh, he smiled. He talked instead of sitting in the Kremlin and producing some kind of uh, some kind of higher level directives. He got out on the street and he shook hands with people. He invited the greatest enemy of USSR, Ronald Reagan, and uh, even though it was the empire of evil, he was not um, afraid to have a dialogue. Uh, but perhaps one of the most important things that he has done, uh, which no other leader in Russia dared to do, he <coughs> he didn't think that truth is a prerogative of the privileged. So uh, one of Gorbachev's and Perestroika's greatest achievements is that he allowed truth in. He allowed glasnost in. Glasnost was a policy of openness where uh, the censure wasn't entirely abandoned, but it was uh, relaxed. And all of a sudden, this is a real, uh, this is a real picture, people standing with newspapers. I remember that time. They were not on, there were huge lines for newspapers because all of a sudden they were publishing the truth about the Soviet state, about the, particularly it started with, uh, the, about the Gulag and the Stalin's cult of personality. Even though it was formally denounced in, by Khrushchev, it was denounced in a secret party Congress in a secret plenary meeting after the party Congress, the Soviet people, by and large, were not uh, given the picture of the, Stal the magnitude of Stalin's terror. And Gorbachev allowed those facts to come out. This is when we learned about the fate of the Russian imperial family and what happened to the Romanovs, because until then they just disappeared. We didn't know they were murdered. And there were all the skeletons that were all of a sudden pouring out of USSR's closet. And um, the nation, for the first time, dared to look itself in the eye and, and realize that it wasn't that great. Uh, it, you know, it actually was living in a reality where it was told it was great, but it, it was the opposite of great. It was terrifying. And so I remember those times as even though every time we would read this new uh, piece in the newspaper, we would shudder. It was still a very hopeful time because there was hope that Russia is going to become normal. Uh, truth, uh, the untruth that we have been taught in school and they have been living through is finally off. It felt very natural. Sometimes people ask me, well, do you feel the perestroika was kind of an aberration in Russia's historical path and Russia is really an autocracy? And I feel that when I was living through Gorbachev's glasnost in perestroika, 
I felt like this is the way things should have been. All of a sudden, it felt normal. We could breathe. We uh, we were no longer told that we are great. And because we are great, we have to behave in a certain way and sacrifice our lives. We were actually free to pursue our dreams um, and and live our lives the way we see fit, as opposed to the way the state wants us to live. So it and, uh, you know, in that time back then, just again, because uh, it felt so natural, uh, everybody thought this was it. This was the end of uh, Russia's greatness. Russia in, um, you know, the Soviet Union ceased to exist very, very shortly after Perestroika uh, began. It only took a few years. Uh, Gorbachev was not trying to undo Soviet Union. He was trying to make Soviet Union a better place, but it turned out that you can't really make a freer totalitarian country. If the, once the truth is allowed, this is this is the end. You know, when people learn what um, uh, what the real picture of the world is, uh, they cannot. You think that they cannot go back. Now, the nineties, when Yeltsin came to uh, to power after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and creation of modern uh, Russia, or postmodern, I guess postmodern Russia, uh, Yeltsin was of the same. Uh, stock with Gorbachev in as much as he believed in democracy, in the need to democratize Russia and uh, to let people, basically to let people be. Russian media space exploded. It were, those were fun years to be in Russia. Of, of course, it, they were accompanied by um, this very real economic hardship. Uh, Russians did not particularly live quite well during the Soviet time. It was a really low bar, but uh, things got much worse uh, during the first years of transition to the market economy. And so uh, all around people, there were fortunes being made because of the uh, privatization of national assets that all of a sudden the factories and plants were sold off auctions to people who um, nobody ever heard of. And so this first level of Russian oligarchs class was being formed. On the other hand, you had all the people whose uh, uh, livelihood declined dramatically after particularly older people, people with lower social mobility. They, um, they could not keep up with all of a sudden when they were everything that they were told uh, believe in communism and Marxist-Leninism, uh, money is bad, capitalism is bad, and all of a sudden it's as if a state decided to press a giant undo button, but can you undo 70 years of indoctrination? Well, for someone like me and uh, people I knew of, the younger people, it was very easy because it felt natural. But for many older people and for people who were displaced by this giant wholesale um, dissolution of state institute, it was a really, really rough transition. And the, now the interesting part, of course, is that greatness, the quest for greatness, feeds off uh, victimhood in, in many ways. People, uh, nobody likes feeling like losers, right? When you're watching or looking around and you're seeing those great fortunes being made and you are sitting with your mega rubles and trying to calculate if a kilogram of smetana is going to uh, cost you uh, most of your uh, weekly paycheck, that's not a good place for a lot of people. So... Um, of course, there was a lot of resentment towards what was happening in the country, and there was a lot of um, re uh, revanchism that uh, somebody would come in and make good use of if he wanted to. Yeltsin wasn't that person. He uh, was a proclaimed Democrat, and he tried to act as democratically as his sort of upbringing as a Communist Party leader announced him. But then in 99, he decided to transition Russia to a man that he called a true Democrat and somebody who is fresh blood and uh, that Russia needs people like him. And that man was Vladimir Putin. So um, 
what I want to spend the next part of our talk today is on this kind of um, guide on how to become great again. Uh, and uh, what uh, Vladimir Putin is vision for Russia. So he came into into his first term on the platform of toughness. And um, his particular flavor of toughness was the toughness against terrorism. Um, in the year when he was trans being transitioned as becoming a Russian, new Russia's leader, um, Moscow was rattled by a series of explosions in apartment buildings. Immediately it was announced that this was done by Chechen terrorists, even though there was not a lot of investigating. At least one of the explosions was foiled and um, was... Uh, It was. It became known that Russian security for forces were operating at the site of that building. Now, the open question remained that um, whether they were thwarting their attack or doing something else. Be that as it may, uh, a new war with Chechnya was launched and a pro-Kremlin uh, leader uh, installed in Chechnya. But the explosions were very real. People were scared. Uh, so Putin came in and his quote, and he used this vernacular that is not um, familiar, was not familiar to coming from a leader of a nation, but he was, his, his expression was, well, drown them in cesspools, meaning terrorists. And so um, he was very, it was a very popular platform. Toughness is a popular platform. Now, what happened was what Russians call kind of up in the ante as far as the society temperature is concerned. When all of a sudden you are filling your media space with talk of greatness and toughness, um, it is a message that can be scaled against any other contingency. And over the years of Putin's presidency, we have seen different parts of the Russian society all of a sudden becoming enemies or something to get tough on. And so obviously the gay propagandists, now gay, um, uh, Russia is a very uh, bad place for being a gay person. Um, they, um, um, so, so that was one of the examples. That if you're wondering about the uh, graphic on the left, um, this one is, says careful liberals. And this is basically showing you the decline of humans as they approach liberalism. So the, at various points, various groups were designated. You know, what started with the Chechens was then sc scaled for all sort of other contingencies. And extra, for instance, now if you go into a protest, it's very easy to be Uh, brand as an, as an extremist, as somebody who is um, um, generating unrest in the society. And all of this kind of boiled down to this concept of the fifth column. It is borrowed from the times of the Spanish uh, Civil War. The fifth column is that one bad column in the middle that undermines all other columns and wants the building to collapse. And so in Russia, This notion of fifth column, anybody, anybody who is not uh, towing the party line, the Putin line, the Kremlin line, is at some point risking to be accused as the member of the fifth column contingency. Another important uh, part of his strategy was hijacking the microphone, right? Uh, so the media, because center was abandoned in um, the Yeltsin and uh, largely Gorbachev times, a lot of different media stations, it was a very vibrant uh, TV, radio, um, all of these alternative channels, because before in Russia, we just had three, channel one, channel two, channel three. All of a sudden, it was um, exploding with this new media space. Um, but uh, after Putin's second term in power, when he decided that he's not retiring, he's not going to leave, and people didn't like it, um, what started to happen is that he declared uh, the press, much uh, like what we're witnessing here today, as uh, the enemy and something that is spreading. The term fake news didn't exist at that time, but it was something that had to be stopped. And so it, what, it happened in a way that 
various radio, sta radio uh, TV stations that were not affiliated with the Kremlin were all of a sudden declined renewal licenses or they couldn't get the frequency. The, I'm going to give you only one example of one. The last independent um, independent media in Russia means not affiliated or controlled by Kremlin. So the last radio station, Dost, um, was uh, canceled after it ran a survey on its website asking whether people believe that Leningrad should, during the Second World War, Leningrad suffered greatly under siege. It was a very lengthy siege, and it was Stalin's um, prerogative not to give it up to the Germans because it's for many reasons. And so, uh, so the question in the survey was, uh, do you think they should have given Leningrad to the Germans to save human lives? Immediately, it was engineered that people, the veterans of World War II or the Great Patriotic War, started calling and demanding to shut down this radio station because it was insulting the feelings of the fighters who lost their lives in Leningrad. And thus, Dost was the last radio station um, that went off the air. It only now exists in Internet broadcasting. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. Something went into that space. And the picture here, you see one of the most notorious of Putin's propagandists, um, Solovyov, at the moment when he promises to turn America into radioactive ash if it doesn't behave. And this all is filling the radio and TV waves. TV is the primary way from where Russians get their, and the majority of Russians get their information. So if you control the microphone, you pretty much control uh, the nation. Another handy thing to um, uh, on the quest to greatness is launching a war. Uh, in 2014, Russia illegally annexed Crimea uh, under the pretext of protecting the interests of Russian speakers. The graphic on the left is basically showing some Russian, some Russians parading on the streets and. Uh, what it says in Cyrillic here, it says, Obama, admit the obvious. This is a message to the American president. That now that, that is back in 2014, uh, because they, through this manufactured news, the, the message that Russia got out to the world was that Crimea, uh, the, the, the preceding unrest in Ukraine that was known to the West as the democratic Developments when Ukraine was trying to join the uh, European Union were in fact engineered by the U.S. State Department. It was all a coup targeted, uh, targeting Russia. Now, when after that, you what you see on the light, uh, on the right is the approval rating. Um, see what a huge um, jump uh, happened here after. You know, people were not terrified, horrified by Russia breaking international law. They cheered it. They clapped it. So um, launching a war was perhaps a singular against Ukraine, which is considered a fellow Slavic nation. I mean, I think the numbers are 40% of Russians are intermarried to Ukrainians. And so you, it's like launching a war against your own brothers and sisters. But uh, and immediately the nation split. The nation split politically along the fault lines of um, Crimea is ours, known in Russia as Krimnash, uh, or Crimea is theirs. So, uh, and eighty percent of Russians approved the annexation of Crimea, and Putin's rating just shot up um, after that. Another step is that you remove opposition, and there are many different ways. Now, Boris Nemtsov, for someone like me, the politician on the left here, was associated with the face of the new Russia. At some point, he was a deputy prime minister under Yeltsin, uh, a deputy, not prime minister. Um, anyway, he was uh, Yeltsin's uh, right hand. Uh, and 
he was, many believed he might be the next president of Russia. He wasn't, he, his party didn't uh, receive the necessary number of votes to make it into the, um, past the threshold. And so he just became, he, he stepped away from politics in 2002, even though many associated him with the liberalization and the reforms of the Yeltsin's years. And, but he became a very um, um, boisterous critic of the Kremlin, uh, particularly of the, uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2015. He was assassinated in front of um, the Kremlin and um, was no longer in the Russian opposition. The man on the right, Alexei Navalny, is the man who, for all intents and purposes, kind of took his to uh, the Boris Nemtsovs, there is no such thing as opposition in Russia, really. It's just a proxy word I'm using because for opposition, you have to have a place in the parliament or that none of that really exists in Russia. Alexei Navalny is the anti-corruption um, lawyer turned politician who is now also Russia's uh, default prisoner by excellence. He is constantly in and out of prison and um, for all intents and purposes, cannot really be a present any legitimate uh, um, concern for the uh, Russian president. It also helps to brandish weapons. This is a new Russian intercontinental missile. Uh, Russians love to show those pictures on TV and kind of. Uh, Uh, saying that, you know, the, the defense, um, the defense and military spending greatly increased under Putin and those pictures are constantly projected on the Russian TV. Another thing on how you can become great is you meddle in others' affairs. Mm -hmm. So what you see here is the member of the Russian Duma or the parliament on the right, the notorious, uh, leader of Russian, uh, party of liberal Democrats that has nothing really to do. It's ultra-nationalist party, let's put it this way. Vladimir Zhirinovsky drinking champagne when the Donald Trump uh, victory was announced. And uh, it is no secret that President Putin wanted Trump to win. He said it himself in Helsinki. And it is also not um, a known fact that he greatly disliked um, Hillary Clinton and Obama and the sanctions that the international community imposed on Russia were really uh, are really hurting the economy and the livelihood, not only of the oligarchs, the oligarchs are just fine, but the uh, ordinary, pe ordinary people. So, um, so, but the meddling in uh, the other countries are fair U.S. and, you know, and Western Europe immediately made, uh, it gave uh, Russian leader what he wanted. He all of a sudden overnight became talked about endlessly. He was made great again. And in the end, you can make it all sacred, right? So Russia, a country that I grew up, was an atheistic country where um, this church and the state were forcefully separated. And uh, for me to see this complete reversal of, which started, of course, everything good, I feel, in Russia started during the perestroika years, well, all of a sudden churches were being restored, people were no longer spied on by the KGB, To, when they went to the church or to the temple to uh, to pray. Now, all that was also hijacked uh, by uh, the new Russian government that is really using the uh, religion as part of the state authority. Um, it's adding a sacred component towards this. It's almost absolute grip on power. This, What you see in this slide is Uh, the new uh, monument to uh, Vladimir the Great, not the current Vladimir, but uh, the man he likes uh, to talk about, uh, the man who baptized uh, Rus. Who, uh, by the way, there is a, a, a monument like that in Kiev, in Ukraine. Ukrainians claim ownership of Vladimir the Great, the baptizer to Ukraine and not to Russia. So that was kind of like um, an overview how you can become great uh, Russian style. But I want to spend the next few minutes talking about how great is it to live in a great country, 
right? And this is not going to be, I'm not going to talk about USSR. Well, the, I'm going to talk about modern Russia. Well, the answer is, it depends who you are, right? I mean, think about another empire, Rome. Uh, for the patricians, it was great. For the slaves, not so much. And so uh, it can be traced in the same way in Russia today. Uh, what you see the picture in here is the um, Russian, uh, after, after Russia, uh, after America and Western nations declared sanctions against Putin's inner circle who were um, instrumental in the annexation of Crimea, Russia came back with its own counter-sanction and, uh, against Western goods. And this is a picture how a, a Russian tractor is demolishing Polish apples because Poland is a member of NATO and so it has to be destroyed. So, but if you are a Russian leader, um, it's actually quite great because you don't have to worry about things. Um, in the elections, these are the numbers that came in during Putin's most recent elections. 80% uh, went for him, even though some um, electro voting stations reported um, 140% people voting for, <laughs> for Putin. But even this minor irregularities aside, uh, you know, that there is a big, um, you know, he was elected in the ele in the free and fair elections. So you, it's the problem was that of course the real candidates were not allowed to run. One was in prison, the other uh, ones were already not there. And so if you're running against a uh, reality TV star like Ksenia Sobchak um, that all of a sudden declared his her presidency candidacy in the now I know reality TV star here is a pretty touchy subject but it was very different in Russia uh, when she all of a sudden de decided to ru to run and people spend the rest of the electoral season wondering whether she is a Kremlin project or not a Kremlin, a Kremlin project. So you hijack. Uh, so for the Russian, uh, for the people on the top of Russian society, yes, it is great. This uh, graphic here is uh, showing you. It's if you want to look at it later, it's uh, posted on finance by Financial Times, and uh, this um, I put it only to show that if you are in the inner circle of power in Russia, then life is good because entire Russian. Economy is controlled by some 110 billionaires, who most of whom have close ties to Vladimir Putin. So, um, yes, for a lot of people at the top who are close to the leader, uh, life in a country, in a great country, is just great. Now, for the rest of us, it's not that great. This is some economic um, statistics, which tells you the numbers... Um, for average kind of cost of living and salaries in Moscow. And you can see that n none here will take you to the Forbes billionaires list. Uh, so it's a very split reality that people in Russia live in. There are super wealthy. There are very few. And then there is the rest of the country that lives kind of like this. And um, But for the masses, there is always, you know, Hooray patriotism. So this particular graphic, uh, what it's, it's showing a Russian missile and saying the missile, Topol, is not afraid of sanctions. And what this was a, an action, a, a, what they have done in Moscow, you can come into certain uh, state-run locations and exchange your old T-shirt for the one that has this graphic, and there you are walking around streets of Moscow sending a message to the universe and to the United States that we're not afraid of the sanctions. Uh, you can also enjoy, um, you know, walking your unique path, and this is what Russians have been told over and over now, that they have a unique path to follow. Their path is very different from the path of the Western Europe. They have their own Values and um, it is okay that they are under sanctions and surrounded by enemies. You know, they have their own path. It's a messianic path. It will show the world how to live in harmony with God and power. And that is, you can, you know, kind of revel in that sort of 
narrative. And then this picture is everything is just great. All right, so this used to be a there used to be a contest called Miss Russia. It still exists now. It's called Miss Great Russia. This is what this says. <laughs> And just to top it off, it has the Orthodox Church in the background. So, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna play a little song for you because you know the quest for greatness in Russia starts early. And this, what I'm gonna play for you, was recorded by a Russian parliamentarian in a school in Volgograd as a her act of supporting for the um, Putin's party united Russia. And I found the one with English subtitles. We're gonna just watch it for the first part of it, but I wanted to show you what the Russians are shown. These are the consequence of greatness. It it starts really early, so I'm going to play it right now. Okay, so Dede Vova is a, a, a Vova is a short of Vladimir, right? So these children are pledging allegiance to uh, the ultimate commander, as they call it in this in this clip. Um, so starts early, uh, and um, if you are living in a great country, you also understand that you will be surrounded by enemies. This graphic here shows, uh, you know, to me as someone who has come to live in the West during Russia's great change and who actually studied abroad because the uh, the hostile Western government invited me to do a postgraduate degree in England. This graph is unbelievable. But this was a um, Levada Center polling station asking Russians who they consider their greatest enemy a year ago. USI, 68%, only followed by Ukraine, 29%. And then it goes down to NATO and former satellite states. So this is the how you can take a nation and just flip it, because that's what we witnessed um, from Gorbachev's openings and reproachment with the West to this kind of numbers. And so you have to revel in isolation. Um, this is, you know, Russia's concept as besieged fortress has uh, is a known concept to a lot of uh, Russians who have suffered under particularly in the 20th centuries and before with foreign conquest. So you can just pull it out and say, yes, uh, there are a lot of enemies and they won't all want to bring Russia down on its knees. But luckily, there is a great leader, the great commander who will protect you. Um, greatness in the Russia case also came with uh, a pretty bad economical uh, consequence. Uh, the ruble uh It didn't quite collapse, but it halved in its value since the annexation of Crimea and the sanctions. So they are really hurting people. Now, the oligarch wealth expanded in 2018. So it is hurting the ordinary people. And that is what the tragedy is, that the people who are in that inner circle are just fine. And you can see that the ties that Gorbachev promoted during Perestroika, the ties between our nations, are now under attack because the Russian consulates are closing all over U.S. and uh, the American consulates are closing all over Russia. To get a visitor visa to Russia can take now up to a year. I'm sorry, not to Russia, to United States if you're a Russian. That is just uh, unbelievable, for particularly for Russians who are now used to travel freely abroad. The other consequence of uh, greatness uh, is that, uh, you know, the corruption has always been a Russian problem, but in the current uh, iteration of the Russian state, it really has reached some unmitigated proportions. Um, you are dealing with corruption, nepotism, and hacks. So that's why the economy is not that good, because if great leaders, they have a tendency to give lucrative positions to their great friends who are not necessarily positioned and have expertise to run what is being handed to them. So they take care 
of it for themselves, but for the rest of the nation, you've seen the economic numbers. It's not a lot is is left. So a lot of Russians have to learn. The, second, the economic situation uh, significantly um, declined uh, after this kind of quest of greatness erupted in, an, in a breaking of international order. You also have to keep opinions to yourself. Um, in the 20 years of Putin's rule, a lot of punitive legislation was invoked. There are laws against extremism, laws against insulting feelings of believers. If those of you who followed Pussy Riot debacle know that uh, they were imprisoned for singing in a church because it was construed as insulting the feelings of believers. Um, there is now a foreign agent law. The organization that sponsored my studies abroad, British Council, not just my studies, but plenty of Russians were given an opportunity to leave and to go and study abroad. Now is first was declared a foreign agent, and um, now it is closed. So all that, now I also read recently that the Fulbright is now not available for people in uh, Russian state-run universities. But what is not state-run in Russia? So it's effectively it's an example of how the, uh, the contacts are getting thinner and thinner. So you have to keep opinions to yourself. There are very strict laws on protests that... Um, and a, a favorite of mine is law against unsanctioned gatherings. So if you don't get a, um, uh, we procure an permission to, comp um, to do your protest, then you are breaking the law and you will end up in prison for um, a certain duration of time. The latest law, which I don't know, I th oh yes, the law against insulting the government it has been officially passed uh, by and signed by Putin. So now if you are insulting a Russian government or a Russian state, this is a criminal offense. And that um, includes putting stuff on social media, liking posts that are critical of uh, the Kremlin's policies and things like that. But you can enjoy the show. Russia has recently uh, given the world the wonderful spectacle of the FIFA World Cup that many of you may have watched and somebody in my house did too. Prior to that, you know, Russians are really great in putting great spectacles. Uh, you may have watched the opening of the Olympics Games. A lot of people approached me and asked if I watched it and was I really impressed and said I was really impressed by how dark Putin looked during the opening ceremony. Everybody was going what's going on and of course we know that um, a month later Crimea was annexed. All right, So there was stuff going on. So if you're living in a great country, you can certainly count on great spectacles and parades and um, really a lot of great stuff that you can watch. But I'm going to close with uh, two things I wanted to get across. Uh, one is that if life in the country is very great, then why are so many Russians wanting to leave? The latest poll from the Gallup uh, Foundation found that uh, forty percent of Russians would prefer in it to live in a different country. That is a pretty large number. That um, is almost double to what it was, I believe, uh, a year ago. And so, in among the younger people, it is even the number is even higher. So, I, that could be an answer to whether life, you know, whether greatness is worthy to pursue. Uh, if, if anything, what we have experienced is that greatness can be for many people as a drug. It's really easy to get hooked on, but very hard to quit. And that it offers really no real solutions to national issues. In other words, it's a, it's a ruse. It's a deception that's thrown at people because it's fairly easy if you control all the state resources, and you can't really figure out how to solve the real issues, then you start the talk of greatness and, you know, saying that uh, let's let's be great and let's everybody be afraid of us. Uh, but my last point today is, and then we'll open for a question, is I want all of you to remember that Russia is not just Putin. Russia is a country of uh, where not everybody approve of what is going on, but people may 
not be uh, as forthcoming as we are in this country simply because um, being forthcoming in Russia has consequences. And um, people may not be willing to to say it. Um, there is Alexei Navalny, who is like a thorn in Putin's side, issuing his uh, the videos about co- cases of corruption in Putin's government through his YouTube channel because he was de- he is denied. Even his name is not mentioned in Russian t- media space. And the name Navalny doesn't exist, but he has millions of followers in the YouTube, and he is, despite uh, being a target of. What feels like being a target, he still does what he he does. There, you know, the Evgenia Albats is the woman who runs the kind of the only newspaper in Russia that I read, the New Times, that was recently attempted to fine 20 million uh, rubles, which is a huge sum uh, even in Russia. But people started pitching in. They didn't want the New Times to close. So everybody was saying she is not going to be able to pay that fine. All of a sudden, all these people who voted for Putin and say that they love him were sponsoring uh, it, it was small donations, but she was able to keep the magazine going. And it's people like Kirill Seryabrinikov, who is a director who has just been released out of his house arrest. Uh, doesn't mean he was acquitted, but at some point his work, his theater work, uh, was not uh, no longer t- uh, pleasing to the Kremlin, and he was arrested on uh, corruption charges. And so many others, all the people who... Uh, go to the protests and um, and still, even though there are all these punitive laws, are still trying to uh, not succumb to this vision of uh, imperial greatness, a sacred power that, uh, and a, really an authoritarian vision that Putin is trying to uh, promote as a natural and as a historical path of Russia. You know, all this greatness talk is a convenient ruse for autocrats to explain their power grabs and to, um, you know, give people something to talk about uh, as opposed to solve real national issues. So um, I'm very grateful that you've attended this talk and that I was able to share with you my vision of um, making Russia great again. So we are going to um, have some time for questions, if there are questions. What do you think Putin will do when his term is up? <laughs> I just, just to say, I don't have a direct line to Kremlin. So we have not discussed that. Uh, but, you know, nobody knows what Putin, that's the nature of uh, autocracy. It's the will of one person. There is talk that I have heard that now they are trying to make uh, Belarus uh, join Russia, and then they, uh, there will be yet another entity. Because technically, even with all the constitutional amendments that uh, Putin was able to um, to do that extended his term, Legally, he has to exit in the end of this last term because he has, unless he rewrites the constitution again, he cannot stay in power. So now there is talk, and you, we have seen the visit of the Belarusian president Lukashenko to Moscow. That uh, how about we create a new a new place, the union of some kind, and um, it's everyone's guess who's going to be the president of that union. So. That is what one of the possible scenarios. But from what uh, I get, the feeling in Russia is that it's just never going to end. It's go- he's going to be in power forever. They'll come an- with another way to keep him there. But if there is any hope, what I remember growing Soviet Union, one of my most kind of visceral feelings, and that's not only me, there's a lot of Soviet people growing up there, is that this place is never going to end. We're going to live like this our entire lives. This Our lives are predicted and charted, and Soviet Union is going to be forever. And then one day it was gone. You know, I remember the radio announcement where they were saying we're no longer Soviet Union. So all that happened in the span of, what, six years when Gorbachev came to power? So... There are surprises, <laughs> you know. You you never you never know. So that's kind of an, a long answer to your question. 
My question was, you more or less answered, but mine was, how is it all going to end? He's going to die someday. He's not immortal, I don't think. So, right. Now, some, you know, there is a, there is a, a thing going on in Russia, uh, that pins him as one of the Russian character fairy tales, um, Kashe Bismirny, an immortal, an immortal, uh, man who basically is, uh, um, is, is, has control of his own life. And so I've seen this thing going around on the internet, which map his features to that fairy tale character. So it's a little silly, but to kind of a little tangent on whether he, you're thinking he is not immortal. You never, you never know. But, uh, again, no, nobody knows how things are going to unfold. You know, people were always wondering, you know, what's going to happen after Lenin. Then Stalin came. Now that's the bad, bad scenario. You know, there is also, there was after Gorbachev, after Brezhnev, there was Gorbachev. So it's one of the things about Russia is a very hard to predict place. So, uh, nobody knows, but if history is any lesson, Russian power is a terminal game. Uh, you know, where the Romanovs have witnessed how it can end. The, uh, Stalin was in power for 37 years, 37, and was really, um, driven the country into this paranoidal state where he was so afraid that he will, you know, so they're not, they don't have a good time because for the more crimes you commit, the more afraid you are that one day justice will find you. So the best scenario is to die when you're still in position, but it doesn't always um, happen like that. Chris? So, so uh, China is maintaining its power by sort of a combination of bribery and, and the Great Firewall, I would say. Mm-hmm. So a question in Russia, how how has how easy is it for people to get outside information and is there a great firewall of Mm -hmm. Russia? That's a great question because it's a great question (laughs) because uh, they have recently been uh, one of the things that is dominating Russian um, kind of uh, outlook right now is the threats that the Russian internet will be cut off. So it will be like China. So a law is being prepared right now that will mandate Russian ISPs to be able to turn Russia off the worldwide web and make it part of RUNET, which will be like a Chinese uh, system. So until then, even though um, uh, inter- Internet was, you could get in trouble for doing stuff on social media, but uh, it was an alternative source of information for a lot of people, particularly for younger people. And this is how, for instance, Navalny, the opposition, built his base through YouTube. Now, this can be in the not too far future that, you know, nobody knows if they will do it or not, but a law to that effect is uh, being discussed right now to cut Russia off the Internet. A very interesting program. Thank you. Um, do you think um, uh, Putin um, miscalculated on, on rooting for Trump and that uh, that he was expecting a, a new dawn for relations and, and that uh, with Trump being uh, undermined as our president, that uh, that uh, that his, his plans kind of went awry? Yeah, you know, nobody knows really what uh, Putin's goals are, right? Uh, so if his goals, uh, like we were discussing today, were making Russia great again, that he achieved his goal. I mean, look at it. All of a sudden, like a lot of people in Russia are in a very different mode as far as election interference goes. Because, you know, for two years here, this has been the constant talk of all the shows and how Russia interfered in the election. And, you know, of course it interfered, but it was, which magnitude? Was it the moving the needle or was it the installation of Trump? And, uh, but all of a sudden, uh, Putin was being talked about constantly and Russia. So in, from that standpoint, you know, he, he didn't miscalculate. He got all this attention. Russians in Russia, liberal Russians in Russia kind of shrugged at the idea that Putin made American elections because immediately it aggrandized him. He was not only the guy who is holding Russia 
in this tight grip. He was also able to derail the world's uh, one of the world's most stable and uh, strongest democracies. So people in Russia had a very hard time with that uh, with that message. So I don't know if it answers your question, but it's uh, what he thinks about uh, about Trump. You know, I, I don't know, but he definitely was uh, as as recent as Helsinki. He uh, was uh, very upbeat about the whole thing, and of course, you understand that for for Russia and for Putin, it's all about the sanctions. Who is go- is Trump going to lift the sanctions or not? So, if he will, then he will be a great friend, and if he doesn't, then it's a different story. So, Russia's activity in Syria and now Venezuela. Is this just to poke the eye of the U.S., or is this going to have financial ramifications like the Chechen war did? Um, what's, what's your thought on their messing around internationally? Well, I think it's just part of being on the international um, radar screen. And partly, look, I mean, for years... United States forgot about Russia and the world forgot about Russia. You know, Russia was this country in the middle of an economic meltdown. Uh, communism was gone. Yeltsin himself said, we are done with communism. So the Cold War was over and people kind of uh, forgot about it. But, uh, you know, Russia, nobody, nobody undid Russia. It's still the largest country in the world. It has borders. It has interests and it will continue whether it's with Putin or with, it was with Yeltsin or whoever comes after him, it will continue to have its set of interests that it's going to pursue, whether aggressively or covertly. We don't know. It depends on where Russia is going to be. Uh, but it will always have some kind of involvement in international affairs. And it will look at places where, you know, uh, whoever is its current adversary main adversary is, then it will do things to undermine that adversary. And that's how things have been. And now it's it's just that we have to get used to that. It doesn't have to be necessarily with, you know, the n- nuclear saber. It could be through disinformation campaigns, for in- through informational uh, warfare and hybrid warfare and stuff like that. So it will be always, Russia will always be a big factor um, in the international affairs, and uh, we should not forget about it. Our thanks to Anastasia Edel, who spoke to us this evening about Putin's quest for greatness. We also thank our audience here for your thoughtful questions and our listening audience. Now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California in its 116th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. <laughs>